Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast for Patreon subscribers to the Islamic History Podcast. We are covering the life of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. This is Sirah uh, chapter number twenty-three, and in this we're going to wrap up the third year of the Hijrah and discuss some final events of this year. One of the Two events that happened in this year that we haven't covered so far were the marriages of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam to Zainab bin Khuzayma, and then later on to Um Salama bint Abi Umayyah. We'll discuss both of them a little bit. Um, these two wives of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So the first was Zainab bint Khuzayma. Should not be confused with Zainab bint Josh, who was another wife of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam and was involved in several famous stories during his lifetime. Uh, Zainab bint Khuzayma was another Zainab. The Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam married her in Ramadan of 4 AH. Uh, Ramadan four years after the Hijrah. He was her third husband. There's some evidence he might have been her fourth. Her first husband divorced her while she was in Mecca, and then after her husband divorced her, she married her ex-husband's brother, who had converted to Islam. It seems as if her first husband had not converted to Islam, and that may have been a reason for his divorcing her. But he wound up marrying her ex-husband's brother, who was Ubaidah ibn al-Hadith, who was a Muslim. Zainab and Ubaidah, they... um, were some of the earliest Muslims, uh, some of the earliest people to accept Islam. It is likely her and her husband were the 12th and 13th people to accept Islam. And uh, they both migrated to Abyssinia when the persecution in Mecca grew a little bit too intense. And they stayed in Abyssinia up until the Prophet ﷺ migrated to Medina. When they learned they had migrated to Medina, they did the same as well. Zainab was known as Umul Masakin, uh, which means mother of the poor, which was because she was known for giving away so much in charity. And then her husband, Ubaidah, he was killed at the Battle of Badr. After her husband, um, Ubaidah, was killed, uh, she um, went on to marry Prophet Muhammad. We're not certain how old she was when she married Prophet Muhammad, but she was probably in her late 40s. However, not long after she married the Prophet, she be, um, developed some sort of illness. She became sick and she died about eight months later. And um, Zainab bin Khuzayma, she was the only other wife of the Prophet besides Khadija to die during his lifetime. And so because she died so early on in Islamic history, we really don't have much more information about her. Like I said, she died just a few months after marrying uh, Prophet Muhammad. So that brings us to the next marriage, which was uh, during this period, uh, the fourth year of the Hijrah, which was uh, the Prophet's marriage to Umm Salama bint Abi Umayyah. Now we have a lot more information about Umm Salama. Now her full name was Hind bint Abi Umayyah, and she along with her first husband, his name was Abdullah ibn Abu Asad, they were also among the first 20 or so people to accept Islam. Uh, some say even among the first 10, Allah knows best. But she was a member of the Mahzum clan from among the Quraysh. And so the Mahzum clan was a fairly prominent clan in uh, Meccan society. And so that made her from among one of the most prominent society, uh, members of society. 
so when she became um, Muslim and she accepted Islam, she was somewhat protected from a lot of the persecution, but still not protected from her own family's ostracization and persecution. She did suffer from that. Um Salama and her husband also made the migration to Abyssinia, but they returned to Mecca uh, once uh, they had heard, gotten word that the persecution had died down or had relented a little bit. But of course, once they got back to Mecca, they realized that that was not the case and the persecution was still going on pretty strong. But now that they were back in Mecca, it wasn't so easy, easy to just run back to Abyssinia. So they stayed in Mecca until the Prophet's migration to Medina. When the Prophet made his migration, Um Salama and her husband, Abdullah ibn Abdul Asad, they both intended to go and make it with the Prophet And they packed their bags and were preparing to leave Mecca with their son Salama. However, Um Salama's clan, the Mahzum clan, they would not let her husband take their daughter out of Mecca with him. And so they refused to let her go along with him. At the same time, her husband's clan, they uh, claimed their son, Salama, said that they would not let her husband leave Mecca with their son, which is really his son, but they called him their son, with Salama, who's just a boy this time, only a few years old, wouldn't let their husband leave with the young boy, Salama. And so, as it turned out, Um Salama was stuck in Mecca while her, without her husband or her son, because her husband went on to Medina to join the Prophet, and her son was now being, being claimed by her husband's clan. And so she remained virtually a prisoner of her own family for about a year, uh, separated from both her husband and her son, which was, of course, almost certainly very distressing for her being alone, surrounded by a bunch of pagans without even her closest family, meaning her husband and her son, with her. Eventually, though, her family began to take some pity and some of the other uh, Quraysh members began to intercede on her behalf and they convinced her family to let her go. Then they also went to her husband's clan and convinced them to let her son return to her. And so eventually she was able to reunite with her husband in Medina with her son as well. Her husband went on to take part in the Battle of Badr and the Battle of Uhud. And he was wounded at the Battle of Uhud. At first, it seemed as if the, um, the injury that he received during the battle was going to heal. But at some point in time, it took a turn for the worst. Most likely, the wound got infected. And at that time, if they even knew about infection, they probably did not have, they most certainly did not have the means to treat it. And it wasn't long, just a few days after the Battle of Uhud, that her husband succumbed to his injuries and died. After that, after um, her husband died, Um Salama was approached by several other companions to, for marriage. Not immediately afterwards, of course, they waited during the Idda period or the waiting period. And once that was done, some of the um, companions approached to marry her. And this was a common act among the Muslims at that time. When a woman's husband was killed during battle, uh, some of the other more prominent companions, they were offered to marry her to provide her protection and provisions. That may seem very patriarchal right now, but it was a good thing and considered a good thing at that time and considered something that was very rewarding for a man to go ahead and marry um, a woman whose husband, who was suddenly widowed because her husband had died in battle and helping to establish Islam. 
But Umm Salama turned them all down. She refused to marry any of them until finally the Prophet offered to marry her. And there's a famous interaction between the two when the Prophet offered marriage to her. She said that uh, she warned him that she was a jealous person and that she was also advanced in age. We're not sure how old she was, but she wasn't a young woman like um, like some of the Prophets otherwise, for instance, Aisha or even... Um, Hafsa, she wasn't as young as that, and she had she had been married for some time and had a son already, and uh, she warned the prophet she was not a young woman any longer, and then also that she had children and that she you know having children that that will now become the prophet's responsibility. The prophet sallallahu responded that he would pray for Allah to ease her jealousy, and he also advised reminded her that he was older than she was, so her age wasn't really a big deal. And then he told her that her family, meaning her children, were his children as well, and he would provide for them. And so ultimately, they they were married in Shawwal 488. Shawwal is the 10th month of the uh, Islamic calendar. So those are the two marriages that took place during this year, the fourth year of the Hijrah. There were also two minor expeditions. Neither one of them led to any uh, casualties on the Muslim side. So, and there was some dispute about casualties on the non-Muslim side. The first one was Adat al This took a uh, took place about a few months after the siege of Banu Nadir. Uh, some say it took place in uh, Jamada of four AH. Others say that it took place in the first month of five AH. So that would be Muharram, the fifth year of the Hijrah. Um, I'm going to go with the fact that it took place in the fourth year of the Hijrah, since we're talking about the fourth year, and Allah knows best. But the point is that this took just a, took place just a few months after the Battle of, of uh, Banu Nadir. You remember this was the um, event where the Prophet Sallallahu we spoke about in the last episode, he uh, laid siege to the Jewish tribe of Banu Nadir in Medina because they had plotted to kill him. Ultimately, so now for this one, the Prophet Sallallahu had heard that there was a Quraysh caravan coming from Syria, and so he led an army out there to intercept this caravan. Along the way, the Muslims, they encountered a, a large group of men from the Ghotafan tribe. The Ghotafan, this was a large group of tribes in uh, northern Arabia, but east of Medina. And there was already some hostility between the two groups, between the Ghotafan and the Muslims of Medina. There had already been at least one clash between the two um, just before the Battle of Ahud. And later on, the Ghotafan will show their true colors by joining sides with the Quraysh in the Battle of the Trench. But nonetheless, suffice it to say that these two sides didn't really like each other. However, neither one of them really wanted a battle. The Prophet wasn't really equipped for a battle. He was there mostly to intercept a caravan. And there's a different sort of preparation you take for intercepting a caravan and going into all-out war. And as far as the Ghotafan were concerned, they had learned that Muslims weren't necessarily pushovers. The Muslims had gone toe-to-toe with the Quraysh twice. And they, the Ghotafan weren't really sure about how many people the Prophet had, had with him. And so both sides were apprehensive and reluctant to go into, a, into battle. And so they kind of just knew each other were in the area, but didn't actually confront each other, at least not in force. So because... The prophet and the Muslims uh, under his authority um, during this expedition, there was an element of fear 
and they weren't sure what was going to happen. They weren't sure if they were going to be attacked or not, or if they would have to suddenly go into battle. They weren't really prepared for battle, as not for a battle like this, as we had mentioned. And so because of this, the institution of the fear prayer was revealed, or at least initiated during this period of time. We mentioned the fear prayer, sometimes called the prayer of fear. This is what we also mentioned it during episode 3-8, when we discussed the massacre of of uh, Karbala between Hussein ibn Ali and his followers against the um, armies of the Banu Umayya or the uh, Umayya Caliphate. We mentioned how Hussein ibn Ali led some of his uh, followers in the fear prayer. We discussed it then, but just to give you a a bit of an idea of how the prayer the the fear prayer works. Uh, the Prophet during this period of time where he was not sure what the Khatafan tribe was going to do, he led the Muslims in prayer. All the companions stood in ranks behind him, but the ranks that were closest to him, they would make sajda with him or prostration with him when he prostrated, while the ranks in the back would stand guard. And then when the Prophet stood back up again from prostration, the ranks would switch places. So the ones who had just made prostration, they would move to the back, whereas the ones who were on guard, they would move to the front. And now they would go ahead and prostrate with the Prophet instead when it was time for prostration to come along. And so as it wound up, the Prophet, or in any case, the Imam, whatever, if this happened, if you happen to make the fear prayer after the Prophet's time, of course, which we all wind up doing. Anyway, the Prophet wound up making four rakats, whereas his companions made two rakats. And this was a stipulation of the fear prayer. And Allah discusses this in a little bit more detail, doesn't go into all of the actual rules of the fear prayer, but it is discussed in... Uh, chapter 4 of the Quran, verses 101 to 103. That will be uh, chapter Nisa, um, chapter of the women. And so uh, that evening, um, still after they had made the fair prayer and the Muslims were still not sure what was going to happen with the Ghatafan tribe, uh, they had to, of course, rest for the night. And so uh, most of the Muslim army slept and the Prophet assigned two people to stand watch, one Muhajir and one Ansar. And the Muhajid and the Ansar, they worked it out that one person would stand guard for half the night while the other one slept. And then um, that one who has stood guard would then wake the other guy up and he will sleep while the other one stood guard. And so the Ansar, he agreed to uh, stand guard the first part of the night while the Muhajid slept. And while he was standing guard, the Ansar decided to pray, uh, most likely Qiyam al And while he was praying, one of the Ghatafan soldiers um, happened to come by and saw him praying. And he thought that, well, this is just one guy alone. I could take him out and maybe we can uh, have a chance to bum rush or attack the Muslims. And so he began shooting arrows at the Ansar while he was praying. The Ansar wound up being struck by three arrows, but never broke from his prayer. He would get struck by an arrow and then pull it out of his body and just keep on praying. And then the pagan shot another one at him. He pulled out, kept on praying. Another one pulled out, kept on praying. Finally, the Ansar finished the prayer and woke up the Muhajir who was sleeping. And the Ansar, of course, is covered in blood and bleeding from from the wounds of the arrows. And the Muhajir, when he sees this, he's like, what happened to you? Why didn't you wake me up? Why do you say something? And the Ansar was saying that he didn't want to interrupt the story that he was reciting and that he would rather read than 
break off from the surah that he was reciting. This is one of those amazing stories you hear about the companions during the time of Prophet Muhammad. Some of these things just are um, beyond any of our understanding. I can't give any sort of scientific understanding of it. The man just has some great willpower, and of course, his faith in the law was strong. He was able to um, to stand up and continue praying, even though he had arrows sticking out of him. So the next day after uh, this event of the arrows and the Ansar praying, one of the members of the Rotafan tribe, he decided he would go ahead and kill the prophet. He thought this might be an opportunity to kill the prophet, and his plan was to sneak into the Muslim camp without wearing any weapons. Of course, if he had been wearing weapons, it would have been um, a bit of an alarm raised, and everyone would have knew he was there for no good. And so instead, he managed to infiltrate the Muslim camp, and he wound up walking up to the prophet while the prophet was sitting alone under the shade, in the shade of a tree with his sword resting in his lap. And so the um, pagan, he walked up to the prophet and asked him to see his sword, just to see, he, see how the sword was looking. I don't know the prophet knew who he was or knew that this man was up to no good or what happened, but for whatever reason, the prophet Hassan agreed and he handed the man his sword. And so the pagan, he unsheaths the sword from his scabbard. Then he starts flashing it around and, and brandishing it and making like he's going to kill the prophet. And he asks the prophet, now, aren't you scared? I'm going to kill you now. Aren't you scared? And the prophet says, no, I'm not scared of you. Allah will protect me. And for whatever reason, this impacted the pagan and he resheathed the sword, put it back into his scabbard and handed it back to the prophet and just walked away. And, um, Allah mentions about, talks about this in chapter 5, verse 11. He mentions how someone was going to stretch their hand to harm the Prophet and, the, and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected him. Ultimately, as far as this expedition was concerned, that uh, recall, no one wound up fighting. There was um, these few incidents that, that were of note, but nobody fought and the Prophet, he had to abandon uh, the idea of intercepting that caravan and just wound up returning to Medina. The next major event, which was really major, was once again one of these minor expeditions. It was called the uh, Expedition of As-Sawik. It took place after the Battle of Uhud. And uh, this took place because the Prophet ﷺ had made an agreement with Abu Sufyan after the Battle of Uhud had ended. He had made an agreement with Abu Sufyan that they would meet again for battle in one year's time. And so now the time had come. A full year had passed since the Battle of Uhud. And so they had agreed to meet at the same place that the Battle of Badr had taken place. And so the Prophet, he gathered his army and he went out there to the well, to the wells of Badr to, to fulfill his contract and his agreement with Abu Sufyan. And that's why this expedition is also sometimes called Badr, Badr Ma'id or the appointment of Badr because it was like an appointment. There was a, a return to Badr or a rendezvous, an appointment at Badr. Anyway, the Prophet arrived with his forces, but Abu Sufyan never showed up. Abu Sufyan and the Quraysh, Abu Sufyan, he did uh, gather up a Quraysh, a Quraysh army and they did actually leave Mecca. But along the way, before they actually got to Badr, Abu Sufyan changed his mind. He started making excuses about how they were dealing with the drought and the 
um, the plants were low and the animals weren't doing too well. He's like, this is not really a good time for battle. This is, this is, let's wait until things get better. Wait, let's wait until the climate and the weather and conditions are better. Then we'll go out and meet them for battle. And so the Quraysh, they pitched camp wherever they were and they drank alcohol. They drank some beer and basically got drunk and then wound up returning back to Mecca without having done anything. So these guys were not very sophisticated. These weren't. These Quraysh were not true warriors, okay? I think we mentioned that before. Anyway, they returned to Mecca, and the Muslims, uh, Prophet Muhammad and the Muslims, they waited around at Badr for eight days. They didn't know that Abu Sufyan had turned back and changed his mind. They just stood there waiting for eight days for the for the, um, the Quraysh to come so they could go ahead and do battle as they had agreed. But after eight days and no one had showed up, the Prophet and the Muslims, they packed their bags and they returned to Medina. And so that will conclude the events of the fourth year of the Hijrah. We're now moving on into the fifth year of the Hijrah, but we're going to get into that more in the next episode. Many, many major events take place in the fifth year of the Hijrah, and we're going to be on that year for quite a while. So I'm going to stop this episode here. I'm going to, we're going to close out this episode, basically. And I'll encourage you to join us again, inshallah, next week for the next episode of Islamic History Exclusive, when we will begin the fifth year of the Hijrah and discuss some of the many, many major events that took place in that year. Very important year in Islamic history. So until then, signing out. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.